I can't help but wonder how many of us, or if any of us, would have taken on the task of confronting Pharaoh, given the outline of failure found at the start of this week's lesson. Just listen to this without any religious filter. In other words, without knowing the later outcome and without assuming God has a greater plan. This is what we read. You will speak all that I command you, yet I will make Pharaoh so headstrong that despite the many signs and wonders that I work in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Well, now that's not exactly the best motivational speech I've ever heard. I hate to admit it, but I don't think I would have been all that anxious to respond to God with a resounding, yes, send me. I'm not excited about the prospect of repeated failure. However, we sometimes learn more in failure than in victory. Steve Jobs, one of this generation's computer entrepreneurs, is a prime example of that. After co-founding Apple Computer in the 1970s, several early failures in production forced him in 1985 to resign from any management responsibilities in the company he had established. In the following decade, Jobs' innovations with Next Software and his investment in Pixar Productions also produced several failed products. When he spoke of these years in his life, Steve Jobs was not bitter. He credited these failures with bringing him back with a better set of tools for the work that would propel Apple into a mega international company known for innovation and customer service, and Pixar into a very creative and profitable publicly traded company. Now, it's true that Steve Jobs was no Moses. The two are not really playing on the same field. Moses' mission is not related to building an industry, but building a people. And the only board of directors he must answer to would reside in the heavenly throne room. Moses was simply a man who put himself at the service of God, trusting that even the predicted failures would lead to triumph. As we read or hear the story in our time, it does have the power, though, to help us see the value in apparent failure and the importance of persistence and trust. One additional insight that helped me and challenged me was in these simple words right at the start of this lesson. See, I have made you a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. As one commentator, Marina Fritz, points out, God is not simply using Moses, but transforming him. If Pharaoh rejects Moses, he rejects God. It makes me wonder how fully we are open to being transformed so that we too have the power to confront evil with the good news of God's love and mercy, so that we too have the power to name the evil in our midst and speak God's liberating message. When Israel told the story of the Exodus from beginning to end, it was infused with the voice of a narrator filling us in on how the plot would unfold and how the drama would end. Sometimes this narrative voice found its way into the dialogue with God and Moses, and sometimes into the narrative pieces that tied the various scenes together. Now we know, for example, as members of the audience, that in spite of Pharaoh's obstinance, God would ultimately bring the Israelites out of Egypt, both to save them from oppression and so that all Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Over the years, I've found that many people stumble over the idea of God making Pharaoh headstrong or obstinate. And so I'd like to spend a good portion of our time with this issue, sharing with you what I've learned from numerous scholars who have pondered this as well. The Pharaoh of Egypt is indelibly drawn in the minds of every generation of those in covenant with God. 
You need only speak the word Pharaoh to evoke vivid images of cruelty and destruction and oppression. Not only was he unmoved on behalf of the slaves, he was even unmoved on behalf of his own people. When the water of the Nile was made unfit to drink, having been turned to blood, the scriptures tell us that Pharaoh had no concern, never mind that his own citizens might have to dig for clear water needed for survival. Later, when their crops and their livestock were devastated, he remained unmoved. Even in the face of the death of Egypt's firstborn, Pharaoh removed himself from the needs of his own people. Have you ever noticed that when the biblical writers speak of Pharaoh, they give us really very little about him, little more than his title, his deeds, and his reputation? We are not given his name, though later research sometimes points to Ramses II or one of those who reigned just before or just after him. Nor are we told much about his personal life, except that he had a compassionate daughter who rescued a child abandoned among the reeds. As Rita Burns points out, Pharaoh is depicted in rather broad strokes, which prevents us from too closely identifying him with one person or one period in time. He was a historical person, mind you, but he also remains a symbolic character. Without any personal information about Pharaoh, it's hard to sympathize with him. But we can't simply brush him aside as an artifact of history either. Pharaoh could exist in any place in any time. Every oppressed people can identify with the Israelites, and every oppressor can be seen in the sketch of Pharaoh. Now, what about this hardness of heart of his? In some cases, as in chapter 8, verse 15, we are told that Pharaoh was responsible for his hard heart. In another cases, the text tells us, as in chapter 7, verse 3, that God is the one who made Pharaoh headstrong or obstinate. I think, if we're honest, our basic sense of fair play is offended when we hear that God was the agent of hard-heartedness. After all, evil or not, Pharaoh was a mere mortal, and the God of Israel was master of the universe. But let's back up a bit. The pharaohs of Egypt did not consider themselves mere mortals. Their people viewed them as gods as well. So Pharaoh embodied Egyptian religion and values. And apparently, those values revolved around opulence and oppression. As we saw earlier, from the beginning of the dialogue with Pharaoh, it was clear that the battle was about power. Who is in charge? Pharaoh believed he had full power and that the slaves would ultimately have no choice but to serve him. Israel's God, on the other hand, was out to demonstrate what power was all about. Through the mission of Moses, the Lord embodies freedom and life and a new ordering of reality. So in one sense, this was a battle between gods, and Israel's God used Pharaoh's own stubbornness as the weapon to defeat him. Now, that's a very basic level of understanding the plagues and the battle between God and Pharaoh, but we can't leave it there. If we do, it seems that God is simply showing off at the gym, flexing divine muscle. We know, though, that God's power was exercised for the sake of humanity and for all of creation. This God of Israel entered into human history and dealt with mortal beings. Do you recall that wonderful passage in chapter 3 where Moses had his first encounter with the great I Am? How God witnessed and heard the suffering of the slaves, knew their oppression, and came down to lead them out? It wasn't simply Pharaoh who stood in the way of God's intervention, but Pharaoh stands as a sign of anything that attempts to thwart God's plan. 
Within these passages of conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, there are actually three different Hebrew root words that have been translated as obstinate, headstrong, or heart of heart. Kabed is one of those. It means to be heavy, dull, or burdensome. Hazak is another one, to be strong or stout or rigid. And kasha is the third. It means to be hard, stiff, or stubborn. Kasha is the term used elsewhere when the scriptures speak of Israel being a stiff-necked people. And that's a good point, really. Pharaoh is not the only one described as stubborn or hard of heart. In the desert, Israel grew hard-hearted. The psalmist would later recall this saying in Psalm 95, Oh, that today you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the desert. There your ancestors tested me, they tried me though they had seen my works. The prophets, too, often lamented Israel's hard-heartedness. Isaiah would say to God, Why do you make us wander, Lord, from your ways, and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? And Ezekiel would complain, For the whole house of Israel is stubborn of brow and hard of heart. Now, when we Westerners of the modern age think of the heart, we tend to connect it almost exclusively with anatomy or with emotions. Not so for the ancient Semitic peoples. For them, the heart was connected intimately with the mind and the will. When the scriptures then speak of being hard of heart, it's the will and the mind which have been made stiff or heavy or hard. There has been a conscious decision, not a simple whim of emotion, to begin building a wall, so to speak. Brick by brick, that wall goes up, and pretty soon it stands firm and impervious to any outside forces. We have the freedom to choose the way we will live, and the kinds of choices we make have this cumulative effect. Our freedom can lead us to fullness of life and great happiness, or our freedom can be frittered away by the choices we make. When we read and hear the story of Pharaoh and contemplate what it means that his heart was hardened, we can see that Pharaoh gave away his freedom to do good by continually choosing to do what was destructive. In his commentary on Exodus, Terence Fretheim uses an imaginative device to illustrate how human decisions can bring affairs to the point of no return. Here's what he says. He says, imagine putting a small boat into a gently flowing river. Now going down river, you begin to hear a waterfall. And by the time you try to get the boat to either shore, the current is too strong. The trip over the falls was not always the shape of the future, but there comes a moment when the plunge is inevitable. It could be said that the river plunged the boat to destruction, but it was not the river that put the boat in, it was you. I think that's a good story. The real sign of God's power and integrity is that we are able to exercise our freedom for good or for bad. God enters into a relationship with us as we are, with the full potential of our graceful cooperation or our disintegration. And human freedom is held intact. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul reminds us, for you were called for freedom, brothers and sisters, but do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another through love. Pharaoh hardened his heart by the repeated cruelties he heaped upon the slaves, and he further hardened his heart by refusing early opportunities to free them. Then the text says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh had given himself over to the inevitable consequences of his attitudes and actions. 
With each obstinate refusal to serve God, it would be harder and harder for him to tear down that wall he was building around his heart. That's the way of sin in our lives too. It has a cumulative effect, each sinful act making it easier for the next sinful act until pretty soon it becomes second nature. Second nature to lie, to harbor bitterness, to tear others down. But you know what? Goodness has a cumulative effect too. With each life-giving act, the next one becomes easier. The Talmud offers this bit of common sense. The real reward for a good deed is that it makes the next good deed easier, and the real punishment for a sin is that it makes it more likely that you will commit the same sin the next time. Now, let's look at the plagues themselves. We'll use the common term plague. It's kind of a shorthand for describing what the writers of Exodus called signs and wonders. In fact, many modern translations use that term in their headings, even though the scripture itself usually does not. Sometimes we get caught in the trap of trying to either prove that the plagues were simply natural events or that they were entirely supernatural. Frankly, the ancients themselves would have made no distinction. That's our issue, not theirs. Terence Fretheim coined a term that helps us get beyond this polarizing argument by proposing that the plagues were instead hypernatural, an excess of nature at various levels. If the locusts or hail was natural to the area, then in liberating Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh, God made them excessive in nature, excessive in their timing, their intensity, their scope. The author emphasizes this reality by use of hyperbole, often saying that all the water turned to blood, all the crops were destroyed, and every man and beast was destroyed by the hail. It's a literary way to emphasize the devastating effects of the plagues. Now, you probably noticed in your reading this week that each plague is told in a way that repeats the pattern of the previous plague with intensified effects. The repetition lulls the reader or the listener into a kind of anticipation of the inevitable bad result. The plagues at first result in discomfort and inconvenience and later become devastating to crops and livestock and in the end, even human life. Most of the plagues follow this pattern. Moses initiates a dialogue with Pharaoh, sometimes while walking near the Nile, other times in the royal palace. And then Moses issues the command of God to let my people go. Then the threat of a plague is followed by the plague itself, causing Pharaoh to kind of temporarily agree to the commands. The plague is lifted, but Pharaoh changes his mind and in his stubbornness of heart refuses to let the Israelites go free. And then finally the stage is set for the next plague. Now, there are a wide variety of explanations for how the plague narrative is organized, but the one I find most helpful is presented by Richard Clifford. Clifford points out that the first nine plagues are organized in three triplets. The first triplet includes water turning to blood, the frogs, and the gnats. In these first three plagues, the storyline demonstrates the superiority of God and the agents of God, that would be Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh's magicians imitate Moses and Aaron, but ultimately cannot compete with him. And then the second triplet of plagues includes the flies, pestilence, and fever boils. In each of these narratives, the emphasis is on God's presence in the land, shielding the chosen people from destruction. Then there's the third triplet, and it's the most devastating so far, hail, locusts, and darkness. The great I Am is simply incomparable and has won the victory. 
Even Pharaoh's servants cry out, how long? They see, especially in the hail and darkness, apocalyptic signs of the end of Pharaoh's power. So according to Richard Clifford, the story of the plagues is told in a way that emphasizes God's superiority, God's protecting presence, and God's incomparability, all three of which will surface in the final plague in chapter 12. The plagues are significant mainly because they function as signs. They point beyond the physical reality to something which cannot be detected by the senses. So when the waters of Egypt turned to blood, the significance or sign value was that the Lord controlled even the most basic element of life. The blood-red waters, the flies and gnats, the frogs, the pestilence, the fever boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, these are all signs that God was truly present and active in history. Even though they had not seen God themselves, in the repeated interventions with Pharaoh, God was nonetheless real. The plagues reminded Israel of God's presence. But there were other reminders as well. Think about the staff used by Moses and Aaron to perform the signs and wonders for Pharaoh and his servants. That staff functioned in an almost sacramental way, making God's presence real and tangible, so an outward sign, and expressing a reality as well as bringing about that reality, which was the freedom of Israel in covenant with God. Israel would eventually save that staff used on the eve of her liberation and the manna from her time of wilderness wandering and the commands from Sinai, treasuring them in the Ark of the Covenant that traveled with them to the Promised Land and made its way for a time to the great temple in Jerusalem. These items were reminders of God's liberating presence. From the start, God had promised Moses, I will be with you. This was a promise made real to Moses even when time after time he seemed overpowered by Pharaoh's refusal to comply with God's command. Moses, you know, was a simple man who made himself available to God's plan. And God's presence was made real to him and to all of Israel through signs and wonders, through protection and forgiveness, and through a history of taking Israel back over and over again. Rabbi Harold Kushner says that in Judaism, a prayer is answered not when we get what we were asking for, but when we are granted a sense of God's nearness. Throughout her history, when settling the land of Canaan, and even later when in exile in Babylon, Israel would always know that she was free. God was near. <laughs>